I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm coming with, uh, with today with a, with a simple message, um, but one that is incredibly important. We've been talking for some time about God's story and then how we fit into God's story. What has God been up to in the past? What is God doing right now? What is God going to do in the future? And then how do I fit, how do you fit into that story? Two weeks ago when we were together, we, were, um, we spent some time talking about Jesus and how he was prophesied about in the Old Testament. We were talking then about the first coming of Jesus. Now in this passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, where you're turning right now, um, the first coming of Jesus has already taken place. And now Peter is looking ahead to the second coming of Jesus. In this passage um, of 2 Peter, it is a a passage where Peter is writing to a group of believers, and uh, he is helping them look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Now, um, this is not an easy time at all for these believers that Peter's writing to. In fact, uh, it's a very difficult time. They're being persecuted, and they're wondering when Jesus is going to return. Jesus, will you please come back for us? Then there's others who are, um, who are confused, and, and we don't know exactly what this false doctrine is that's being talked about in Second Peter, but we know there is a false doctrine. We don't know exactly what this heresy is. Um, it could have been something about the twisting of Scriptures. Um, we do know that there are people who are mocking the second coming of Jesus. It's also clear there's some immorality taking place within the church. But these believers need a serious reminder of God's judgment that is to come and the imminence of Jesus' return. And so that's exactly what Peter gives these believers. Now, folks, as we approach this passage of Scripture today, I want to come to you with a very similar statement of, I fully believe that all of us need another reminder of the imminence of Jesus' return and how there is coming a day in which God will judge all of the earth. If you are in 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to start reading in verse 1, and, and I want to actually read verses 1 through 13. We've already heard verses 8 through 13. But if you're able to do so, you're physically able to do so, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Folks, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Father, I come to you and I ask that in these moments, you help us to get rid of any distraction that may pull our attention away from understanding and applying your word. Father, we ask that you also make your word clear to us so we can understand it. And Father, in all things, may may you have the preeminence. May you reign supreme in these moments. And Father, may we leave today being captured by the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, and and, and looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. Father, we love you, but we only love you because you first loved us. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place. It's in his holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So far this year... uh, we have been looking in the Old Testament at God's story. <clears throat> so all up, up to this point, this whole year, we've been in the Old Testament. Now, today is a little bit of an in-between. Next, or excuse me, two weeks from today, we're going to be in uh, the New Testament, really, for the first time, looking at Jesus, at the birth of Jesus. I've talked with you about Christmas in July. You remember? It's coming up here in um, July the 21st. We have the opportunity to, in our service, celebrate Christmas in July and then later that week be together in in each other's homes. Next week, uh, Dexter Kirby is actually going to be preaching for me, and he's going to share his story, how he fits into God's story. You're going to want to be a part of of hearing that. But um, as we think about the Old Testament, kind of wrapping up the Old Testament, 16 of the 17 Old Testament books include references to the second coming of Christ. These are books that are prophetic in nature, looking ahead to the second coming. In the Old Testament alone, there's over 1,800 references to the second coming of Christ. The Old Testament has a whole lot to say about not only Jesus' first coming, but also his second coming. Now, if you were to really stop and think about it, a person might assume that those references are full of excitement about the second coming, right? It's going to be a glorious time, an exciting time. But actually, if you go back and you look at the Old Testament, at the references regarding the second coming of Jesus, the vast majority of them have one theme and one theme alone. And that theme is judgment. Not exactly an exciting thing to talk about. Let me show you some examples. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2 verse 12 says, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 says, alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. Daniel chapter 12 verse 1, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Amos chapter 5 verses 18 through 20 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness. It is not, it is not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Now you look at that last verse and you think, man, that's really descriptive, isn't it? Um, this, this, you put your hand up on the, on the wall and a serpent bites you, a man fleeing from a lion. This is a day that is going to be filled with darkness. 
Uh, Zechariah, even in, in his book, he spent nearly three chapters specifically speaking about the judgment of the world that is going to take place at the end times, with the second coming of Jesus. He spends all of chapter 12, chapter 13, and part of chapter 14 talking about this coming judgment. Folks, the judgment of God is a very serious thing, and we know it's going to come on the earth someday because of mankind's sin and the rejection of God. God created this world without sin. And when mankind brought sin into the world, they turned their back on God and they brought about God's judgment on mankind as individuals, but also on the world as a whole. This earth is in a state of decay. People talk about, you know, hey, we're losing our planet. Yeah, we are. And it makes sense because our planet is in a state of decay. There's going to come a time in which God is going to completely wipe it off the face of the earth and he's going to rebuild and make new. It's a day of judgment. The second coming of Jesus is what's going to usher in this, this ultimate judgment on the earth. A little bit later this year, as we continue our series, we're going to spend about four weeks in the book of Revelation. And we're going to talk about the progression of the end times, what we see there and, and what's going to take place in eternity future. For today, however, I want to use this passage of Scripture that we just read in 2 Peter chapter 3 as somewhat of a guide to help us understand how we as believers are to respond to the second coming, how we're to, to look forward to it, okay? So 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to jump right in here with the first point. We see first that believers should remember the predictions of the Old Testament prophets. Remember the predictions of the Old Testament prophets. If you've got something to write with, I want to encourage you to write these points down, okay? I've got five of them all together. This is the first one. Let's look at... Uh, verse 1 in 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. This is referring to the predictions about the judgment that are gonna, that's going to take place in the end times. All of these that he's talking about here are specifically found in the Old Testament. I read several of those for you just a moment ago, just to give us an idea of, of those Old Testament prophets and what they prophesied. Peter's telling these believers to hold on to what those prophets had to say. Remember it. Don't forget it. Remember their predictions. They've been proven accurate already in, in how they, um, they foretold of the first coming of Jesus and how Jesus was able to fulfill many of those prophecies. And they can also, they will also be accurate when it comes to the second coming of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago when we were talking about prophecy, uh, specifically with the first coming of Jesus, um, I shared with you about how we can trust God's Word and we can trust what it has to say about the things that are to come. I told you that there's no less than 55 already fulfilled prophecies, right? You remember that? There's many, many more actually, but that's the ones that I can tell you I have written down that I can go to in Scripture and show you exactly what they are. No less than 55 already fulfilled prophecies regarding Jesus that are found in the Bible. The chances of one man fulfilling only eight of those prophecies apart from the power of God is a chance of one in 10 to the 17th power. In other words, a number that looks like that right there. That's only eight of these prophecies, remember? The, the chance of, only, of one man fulfilling only eight of those prophecies is that number. I use the illustration with you that um, it's, it's like you take a silver dollar 
You go to the state of Texas, and you cover the state of Texas with that many silver dollars. Now, how many of you have been to Texas before? All right, I've driven across a small part of Texas. I've flown in and out of Texas multiple times, but it is a massive, massive state. And if you take that many silver dollars and you put them all over the ground in Texas, it's going to fill Texas two foot deep with silver dollars. Okay, but now let's say that you've got Texas filled with this many silver dollars and you take one silver dollar and you put a mark on it and you throw it out there somewhere. You take this great big mixer, you mix the whole thing up, you blindfold a guy and tell him he can walk as far as he wants to walk, but at some point he has got to pick up a silver dollar. He has the same chance of picking up that marked silver dollar as there is of one person fulfilling only eight prophecies found in the Bible, like Jesus did. Pretty slim odds, isn't it? Except for the power of God at work. Now, that's only eight prophecies. There are at least 55 already fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. Folks, it is absolutely incredible. We know from looking at this that God's word can be trusted, our God can be trusted. Peter knows that God's word can be trusted. And that's why he's pointing these believers back to the Old Testament prophets. He's saying they are a guide that can be looked to for validity. As believers today, um, we've, got the, we've got to immerse ourselves in the Old Testament. Because it's in the Old Testament that we find over and over and over again God's faithfulness. What God says is going to happen actually happens. This year, we're reading the Bible through uh, together as a church, and I hope that you're, you're caught up with that. I hope you're reading with us. If you're not caught up, then you got two options. Actually, you got three options. You could do nothing at all. You could, you could work hard to catch up, or you could jump in with where we're at. Regardless, immerse yourself in God's Word. Because one of the things you're going to find is that as you read the Old Testament, getting into the New Testament here soon, is God's plan continually coming about exactly as how he, how he designed it to come about. One of the ways God brings his plan to light is through the Old Testament prophets. They're there to shine a light on, on, on what God's plan actually looks like. There's a reason Peter is so clear here in this, in this letter to point the believers to the predictions of the holy prophets. Peter doesn't stop there, though. He continues by telling the believers to not only remember the prophet's predictions, he also says, remember the commandment of Jesus. That's your second point there. Remember the commandment of Jesus. Now, I'm going to go back and read verses 1 and 2 again. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, there's a little bit of a question here about what commandment Jesus is talking to or talking about. Excuse me. There's a little bit of question about what commandment of Jesus Peter is talking about. Because Jesus had a whole lot of things to say while he was here on this earth. I tend to lean towards Peter is talking about the whole commandment of Jesus. What Jesus said, hang on to it. Don't let go of it. Hold on to the things that the apostles are handing down as having heard from Jesus himself. Here's the thing about um, a specific commandment that Jesus had that Peter might be thinking about here. I think about Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And here's what's going on in Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's giving this discourse 
And he's talking about the tribulation that is to come. He's talking about the destruction of the temple that is to come. We know it actually took place in A.D. 70. He's talking about um, how he is going to come back at the end of the tribulation. Folks, it's phenomenal the way Jesus is himself pointing a light on what is going to take place in the future. And here's a side note, kind of a homework assignment for you. This afternoon, after you get home, after you eat your lunch, before you take your nap, or maybe you shouldn't, maybe you should do it after your nap so you can stay awake during the whole thing. Take out your Bible and read Matthew 24 and 25. Because what you're going to find there is absolutely phenomenal as Jesus shines this light on what is to come. So that's your homework assignment. Read Matthew 24 and 25. But Peter here in this passage of 2 Peter 3 is telling the believers that he's writing to, he's saying, hey, remember the predictions of the Old Testament prophets. Hold on to the full commandment of Jesus, the whole commandment of Jesus. Folks, we too must hold on to everything that Jesus had to say. Hold on to it. We have the great blessing of having God's word. And we can read it and we can understand what it has to say. It's a phenomenal blessing for us. Here's the third point. Know that some people are going to scoff. Know that some people are going to scoff. I'm going to read verses uh, 3 through 7 for us, okay? Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact— that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Folks, at the time of, of Noah, when God commanded him to build an ark, what did people do? They laughed at him, right? They scoffed at the imminent judgment of God. We talked about this several months ago when we were in the book of Genesis. When Noah is building the, 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 the ark at God's command, people are laughing at him. They're making fun of him. They were scoffers. Warren Wearsby describes a scoffer in this way. He says, a scoffer is someone who treats lightly that which ought to be taken seriously. Warren, uh, Wearsby, Wearsby continues, the people in Noah's day scoffed at the idea of a judgment, and the citizens of Sodom scoffed at the possibility of fire and brimstone, destroying their sinful city. If you have tried at all to witness for Jesus Christ, you have no doubt met people who scoff at the idea of hell or a future day of judgment for this world. Now, we know that the judgment of the world is imminent. We don't know when Jesus is going to return, but we do know that he's going to return at some point. But in the meantime, there's people who laugh at this reality. A little bit later on in the, in the same article, Warren Wearsby asked the question. He says, why do these apostates scoff? He continues, because they want to continue living in their sin. If your lifestyle contradicts the word of God, then you have either got to change your lifestyle or you've got to change the word of God. The apostates choose the latter approach. They scoff at the doctrines of judgment. They scoff at the coming of the Lord someday. Now, it's not often that we use words like apostate, so let me define this for you, okay? An apostate is someone who turns their back on God. They turn their back on God. The Bible's clear that if you turn your back on God, then you are turning your back on salvation. You are turning your back on a relationship with God. 
The Bible is also clear in John chapter 14 and verse 6 that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that there's no one who can get to the Father except through Him. So for us to think that we could somehow gain eternal life on our own apart from Jesus is nothing short of laughing in the face of our Creator. The apostate is someone who, at their core, they may know, or they, they probably know that Jesus is legit. They simply choose their sin over the Savior. That's the decision they make. This passage tells us they even go so far as to scoff in the face of imminent danger or imminent judgment for their sin. They treat lightly that which ought to be taken seriously. When I think about this idea of, of treating lightly that which ought to be taken seriously, um, I, I think about being on a flight not too long ago, sometime in the last couple of years, and I was talking with a man that was sitting next to me. Um, I love talking on planes and, and sharing my faith on planes because where are they going to go, right? <laughs> Unless they have a parachute, um, they're not going anywhere. But anyway, this man told me that he had attended church with his parents when he was growing up, but that he hadn't been involved in church in, in many, many years. So I'm asking him, you know, hey, what do you believe about Jesus? And immediately uh, he brought up, oh, I don't believe in a literal hell. All right, well, that, I didn't ask that question, but all right, let's, let's go there. But he talked about how he, he didn't believe in a literal hell because how could an all-loving God send anyone to hell in judgment? In fact, he went so far as to laugh there on that plane at anyone who thought that God would in any way judge people because God is that all-loving God. This man is what would be known as a scoffer. And Peter tells the believers here in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, hey, some people are going to scoff. They're going to laugh at judgment. Even though it is in their face and it's going to happen, they're going to laugh at it. But in the face of scoffing or laughing, folks, we should always, always as believers remember God's love for mankind. And we should never forget his abundant grace. That's the next thing we find here in this passage. Never forget God's abundant grace. Start reading in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should, should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies are going to be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Folks, I love what we find there in verse 8. I love this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. In other words, keep your eyes on this, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. This is once again a reminder that God does not think, He does not act the way we do. And what a blessing that is. Because then in verse 9, we find that God is patient toward us. Even in our state of sin, God is patient toward us. He even goes so far as to say that He does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Folks, that means that God's desire for every single person on this earth is that they enter into a personal relationship with Him. That includes your neighbor who refuses to attend church with you. Okay, that includes your coworker who uses the foulest language that you could ever imagine. That includes your classmate who is so skeptical of God that it seems like there is no hope for them. 
That includes your family member who feels like they have been let down and they've been rejected by God. God's desire is that no one perishes without him and that everyone reaches repentance. However, there is coming a day that will surprise every single person on this earth in which God is going to judge both the righteous and the ungodly. Verse 10 describes this as um, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. You never know when a thief is going to show up at your house. If you did know when the thief is going to show up at your house, you would be armed with every single redneck you could find who has a gun to make sure they don't get into your house, right? At least that's my family. That's exactly what they would be doing. You don't know when a thief is going to show up at your house. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. He's going to come like a thief in the night. You know, that's something for us to look forward to, not something for us to dread. In fact, it's only something to dread if you have not entered into that abundant grace that God offers. Then you've got something to dread. You've got the wrath of God to dread. But Christian, believer, Listen, if you are in the family of God, you have surrendered to Jesus, you've repented of your sin, you are following Jesus, that is a day to look forward to. So what is a Christian supposed to do with what we found so far here in 2 Peter? What are we supposed to do with this? Number five, I love this statement, live like there's no tomorrow. Live like there's no tomorrow. We live like there's no tomorrow, honestly, because there may be no tomorrow. God could choose to come back at any time, to send Jesus at any time. Let's pick up our reading in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Folks, what I find in those verses fill me with hope and anticipation. It is hope that is centered on the fact that Jesus is going to return someday and anticipation, wondering what that day is going to be like. As believers, we have a responsibility to be faithful in living lives of holiness and godliness, watching for Jesus to return, anticipating his return, Watching for for everything that is wrong in this world to be ultimately and eternally corrected. Watching for the day in which God is going to be glorified in everything under the sun. We can live as if there's no tomorrow because there's coming a day in which there is going to be no tomorrow as we know it now. Now, that's not saying we go out and we live any way we want to. Rather, that is an invitation for us to give everything we have and everything we are for the sake of of the gospel. We give our time, we give our resources, we give our lives to following our Savior. This morning we have with us many of our missionaries who are, who are serving God all around the world. In fact, I'm going I'm to embarrass you here for just a second, okay? If you are sent by or supported by Salem Baptist Church as a missionary, would you please stand up? Come on, you got this. There you go. Thank y'all. Folks, thank you. Because you are giving your life to reach people on a foreign field or a domestic field, whatever it is. And that is phenomenal. These are people, church, listen, these are people who have chosen to place their lives and the lives of their families in a position to surrender 
to the kingdom of God. And God has chosen to send them to the uttermost parts of the earth for the sake of his kingdom. And church, listen to me with this too. If God has placed you here in Winston-Salem, then he has a plan for you that is no less than the plan that he has for those he sends overseas. He has a plan for you to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what has happened in you. That's his plan. He's going to use you to advance his kingdom. Folks, there is nothing more important in this world than the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus is teaching on the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter, five verse, excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, and you know these words. But seek what? First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This past week, I came across a sermon from Charles Spurgeon. And in this sermon, he's speaking specifically about that verse from Matthew chapter 6. And here's what he has to say. I'm going to read an excerpt from this sermon. Our desire should be, first of all, to enter into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the new life, the kingdom of perfect liberty, the kingdom of faith in Christ, the kingdom of union to Christ, the kingdom of the power of the Spirit of God. Have we all entered it? If we have not, let us seek that kingdom immediately. Before we seek our own door, let us seek first this kingdom of God so that we may take up our citizenship in it and become loyal subjects of the great king. The way of admission into the kingdom is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. As many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Seek thus to enter the kingdom of God. He continues by saying, once in it, then seek to enjoy its privileges. When you have become the subjects of the great king, ask him to fully rule in your spirit and therein to set up his throne of righteousness. Ask that you may have all the peace that appertains to that kingdom, all the holiness which is the characteristic of that kingdom, all the rest, all the joy, all the spiritual wealth, and all the sacred ennobling which come to men who are brought under the sway of the Lord's Christ, whose gracious spirit brings every thought into captivity to his sovereign will. One last section. Further, being in the kingdom and enjoying its privileges, then seek to extend that kingdom. Go forth every morning, conquering and to conquer with the weapons of love and kindness. Seek to win men to Christ. Enlisted in this holy army, carry on a constant crusade for Christ. From your earliest waking thoughts till you fall asleep at night, be intent, first and foremost, to win other hearts to Christ. Let all your care go in this direction to serve God, to live for God, to glorify God. Seek this as earnestly as the merchant seeks trade, as the miser seeks gold, as the sick man seeks a return of health. Seek you first the kingdom of God. It's the end of the quote from Spurgeon. Church, there is nothing more important than seeking the kingdom of God. We can and we should live like there is no tomorrow and in everything seek God's kingdom above our own. There is going to come a day in which the eternal kingdom of God is going to be ushered in. That kingdom is going to be political for the Jews. It's going to be universal for the rest of humanity. That kingdom is going to be ushered in by the second coming of Jesus. Therefore, we put our eyes to that coming and we don't turn back. No matter what, we don't turn back. As I prayed about what to share with you today, I realized that more than anything else, I needed 
And I believe that we as a church needed the reminder that there is coming a day in which Jesus is going to return. His first return was one that was unlike any other. His second return is coming and it is far, it is going to far exceed our expectations and it is going to be nothing short of phenomenal. Now I've got just one question for all of us here this morning as we get ready to close. Here it is. Are you ready for the second coming of Jesus? Are you ready for the second coming of Jesus? And really there's two ways that this applies or could apply to you, okay? First of all, has there been a time in your life in which you surrendered your life to Jesus? You repented of your sin. You acknowledged that you were a sinner and you, you turned from that sin to follow Jesus. Has there been a time in your life in which you did that? If not, then here in a few moments, we're going to sing a song together. And I want to encourage you, today might be the day for you to do that. Come up here. I'll be right up here on the front row. Come up here and see me and I'll show you what it looks like to surrender your life to Jesus. But then secondly, as we ask this question of, are you ready for the second coming of Jesus? You might be a believer here, and, and you're ready in the sense that if Jesus were to come back, that you're safe, we'll say it that way, that you're going to be with him for eternity. But what are the things that Jesus is calling you to do to advance his kingdom right now that you're disobeying him in? What neighbor is there that he has laid on your heart saying, that is not a believer, and you need to go and share with them the gospel? What family member is there that needs to hear the gospel? What mission endeavor is God calling you to, to advance his kingdom and yet you are saying no to? What, what amount of money is there that God is nudging you saying, hey, I, am, I, I want you to give this to the mission of advancing my kingdom and yet you refuse to do so? You see, you might be safe when it comes to the second coming of Jesus in that you're going to be with God for eternity. But folks, how much greater would it be to be able to spend eternity with God knowing that you gave your everything for the sake of the kingdom of God? That when that day came for Jesus to come back, you were ready. As we get ready to sing this song here in a moment, you deal with God in any way you need to. Right there in your seat, standing where you're singing, kneeling down here at the altar, whatever you need to do, you do it. Would you pray with me? Our Father, wow, what a thought. That Father, you would send Jesus to die on our behalf. That first coming of Jesus brought us hope. And Father, we thank you for it. Father, we look forward in anticipation to the second coming of Jesus. And Lord, we know that you are going to, to use that to usher in judgment, but also, Father, you are going to use that to usher in an eternal kingdom in which, Father, there is no sin. There is no heartache. There is no death. And Father, we look forward to that day. Now, Father, would you help us to know what it looks like to advance your kingdom while here on this earth. So when that day comes, when the second day coming of Jesus truly comes, Father, we truly are ready. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.